0: Several months ago when Tom and I were discussing this day and how to bring Missions Fest 1996 to a climax, it occurred to us that most of the people in this room are not or were not here during the years when the driving convictions of missions here at Bethlehem were being forged. Let me just do a survey here. Raise your hand if you have come to Bethlehem or if you were not here in 1983. Raise your hand. Not here. Okay. So 95% of you were not here when the battle cry for Christian hedonism was sounded in 1983. A few more probably were here in 1984 with the first missions in the manse. A few more perhaps between 85 and 88 when 90 by 90 was conceived and achieved. A few more perhaps when we adopted the manica in 1990. Let's try another one. How many of you have begun attending Bethlehem since 1990? Raise your hand. Okay. So there is need for a restatement, Tom and I concluded, of some of the driving convictions that are behind the missionary movement at Bethlehem. So I'm not going to preach from a text this morning. I'm going to preach from a lot of texts and try to summarize some driving convictions that make this church tick. Now, missions is not new at A hundred years ago, Ola Hansen went out from us and planted the church among the Kachin people. And in the mid-1940s, when the BGC was forming its own missions agency, Bethlehem, a flagship church in those days, was right at the thick of things here in the St. Paul Twin Cities area. And uh, Pastor Sholen was right in the center of it. And so there's nothing new here, but the history that I'm most familiar with is the last 16 years. And sometimes people say, words are cheap, show us your checkbook, and we'll know what your values are. So I think it would be helpful to just look at Bethlehem's checkbook for just a moment here as a values clarification In 1981, the missions budget was 600, I mean, $62,270 and 22% of the budget. In 1996, the budget for missions is $439,661, 32% of the budget. And to keep that in, in proper perspective, the amount or percentage of the budget that goes to staff compensation has dropped from 52% to 46%, which means that more missions are being done for less outlay at home, and that's good. There's another statistic that is more important, I think, for understanding the value transformation in a congregation, and that's this one. In 1981, the average mission gift per sunday per member was $2.50 today it's $8.90 in other words if you take the annual missions budget divided by the average sunday morning attendance divided by 52 it jumps from 250 to 890 or a 356% increase over The last 15 years, which has nothing to do with inflation, has nothing to do with totals. It has to do with value change. That's what that number means. That's a value change in the mindset of this church and its givers. Many of us believe that the next three weeks are the end of an era. The end of a building era. This building has existed since 1991. This one. We began to raise money for it, a good bit before that, paid half of it before we moved into it, and we will pay the last penny of our indebtedness, God willing, by November 24th, three weeks from now. That's the end of an era, the end of a building era. And we believe that the next era will be an era of remarkable growth In missions, and that's our prayer. That's the meaning of freeing the future. I do hope that you will complete your good resolves. So Tom and I thought that it was time at this juncture to go back and revisit what is it, what are the values that have grown up, taken root so that all of you people who are newer at Bethlehem and can kind of smell that there's something about this church that's got to do with missions. Most people don't put an S on the word people. That's weird. I mean, when was the last time you heard anybody use the word peoples? Only in church do they talk like that, because church is the only place where there's a mission directed at peoples. So there's something going on here, and I want to try to clarify it for you. I've got seven convictions and I want to lift them up for you and briefly explain them and then maybe you'll know better. And I hope my prayer is that you'll join this. There are only three kinds of Christians when it comes to missions. Zealous goers, zealous senders and disobedient. And my prayer is, is that there won't be any Disobedient among us. So conviction number one. God is passionately committed to his fame. God's ultimate goal is that his name be known and praised by all the peoples of the earth. Romans nine seventeen. the goal of God in redeeming Israel is this, that his name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Isaiah 66, 19. God promised that he would send messengers to the coastlands afar off that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. We believe that the central command of the Great Commission is Isaiah 12, verse 4. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name Is exalted. The apostle Paul described his own ministry like this. It is to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of the name. John the apostle said that missionaries are those who have set out for the sake of the name. Third John seven. James the Lord's brother, described missions as God's visiting the nations to take out of them a people for His name. Acts 15:14. Jesus described missionaries as those who leave houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or lands for my name's sake. So it's very clear that God is passionately concerned about the fame of his name, about the glory of his name among the nations. Back in the mid-80s, God drove us to see that a God-centered theology has to be a missionary theology. If you love the glory of God this morning, you may test your authenticity by asking whether you love the nations. That is, whether you want to see the glory spread among the nations. If you don't, you don't love the glory of God. It's a, it's a test of authenticity. God loves his glory known. He loves his glory spread. He loves his glory exalted among the nations. You can't love the glory of God and not be passionate for missions once you understand that. Not to care about missions is to belie your love for the glory of God. There is no such thing as a private glory of God. He is the God of the nations. And he means for his fame to be spread among the nations. That's conviction number one. It's most important. Conviction number two is this. God's passion to be known and praised by all the peoples of the earth is not selfish. It is loving. God's passion to be known and praised among the nations is not selfish It is loving. God is the one being in all the universe for whom self-exaltation is the highest virtue and the most ultimately loving thing. You may not copy him in that. He is without peer or analogy. He is the one and only being in the universe for whom self-exaltation is the ultimately loving act. And there's a very simple explanation for why that is. God's glory, that is the beauty of all that he is for us in Jesus, is the only reality that can satisfy the human heart. Therefore, if he does not uphold that glory, uphold that worth and see to it that it gets known and spread among all the nations with those empty hearts, he would be as unloving as a husband who commits suicide. It is a loving thing for God to spread his glory among the nations because it's the only thing that will satisfy the human heart. Maybe the most clear way to see this is in Romans 15:9, where Paul says that the reason Christ came into the world was so that the nations might glorify God for his mercy. You see that? Glorify God. That's the goal for his mercy. He gets the glory. We get the mercy. He gets the praise. We get the pleasure. He gets the honor. We get saved. Therefore, when he seeks that honor for himself, it's a loving thing. God is the one being in the universe for whom to seek his praise and his honor and his own glory is the most loving thing. Because that glory, which has its pinnacle in mercy, is the only thing that will save me. It's the only thing that will satisfy me and all the nations of the world. So let me try to sum up first and second conviction here. There are two basic problems in the universe. Only two. God is profaned and people are perishing. Those are the only two basic problems. Everything resolves into that. And conviction number one says, God will not indefinitely suffer his name to be profaned. He will vindicate his name. And conviction number two says, he has found a way and planned a way to do it by the demonstration of mercy through the death of his son that we might be saved and glorify him for his mercy. Romans 15, 9. Conviction number three. God's purpose to be praised among the nations cannot fail. It is an absolutely certain promise. It is going to happen. When the Great Commission was given in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, it was preceded and undergirded by this word from the Lord. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, and oh, don't we love those words. Therefore, go. The reason we go is because we have the absolute confidence that the one in whose name we go has all authority over all powers in heaven and on earth. Therefore, nothing can stop him. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus said it is an amazing thing that he has this authority and undergirds his mission with it. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. Spurgeon used to say, I love the wills and the shells of God. This gospel will be preached. The sovereignty of God secures and guarantees it will be done. When I was in Wheaton last weekend, I spoke to the students at the World Christian Fellowship. And I gave them four reasons why they may be absolutely certain that to join this cause is to join a winning cause. You cannot lose. You cannot do anything in vain if you pour your life into the cause of world evangelization. And the four reasons were number one, Jesus word is more sure than the heavens and the earth two, the ransom has been paid. For the elect among all the peoples, according to Revelation 5-9, God will not let the blood of His Son be spilled in vain. Three, God is sovereign over all things. And four, the glory of God is at stake. And I gave them this illustration of the sovereignty of God. The September 16th issue of Christianity Today had an article on the five missionaries who perished in January of 1956, which is 50 years ago, 40 years ago now. And Nate Saint's son wrote the article. Nate Saint was one who was speared to death on Palm Beach there in the little river in Ecuador. And he told the story of talking to the killers and finding out the intrigue In the tribe behind the murders that were mind-boggling, he said, things that had never been known before that brought about this killing, which never should have, never could have, never would have happened had there not been this extraordinary coming together of unusual events in the tribe before those missionaries ever arrived on the beach there. And this sentence is one of the most startling sentences I have ever read by anybody who's ever had a martyred relative. Or anybody else, for that matter. Listen to it. This is Steve Saint writing about the killers of his dad. As the killers described their recollections, it occurred to me how incredibly unlikely it was that the Palm Beach killing took place at all. It is an anomaly that I cannot explain outside of divine intervention. I did read it correctly. And I'm going to read it again because I don't think you heard it. Just because I didn't hear it the first time I read it. I I just, it jarred me so deeply. I said, he can't have written that. It is an anomaly that these five were killed that I cannot explain outside of divine intervention. God killed my dad. My dad's death by spearing is inexplicable apart from the fact that God arrived on Palm Beach and saw to it that it would happen. That's what he said, not what I said. And that's a son talking, not an enemy. And that's what I mean by the sovereignty of God. This work, folks, of the Great Commission will be done because in the darkest hours of our tears and tragedy, God in the cloud of that darkness is planting explosives behind the lines. That's what he's doing. Don't ever call God into question in the midst of tragedies. Not even 500 martyrs a day in Sudan. Pray, yes, for their deliverance. But even more, that the blood of the martyrs might be the seed of the church among the nations. So, conviction number Three is it's going to happen. It's going to be done. Conviction number four, domestic ministries are the goal of frontier missions. Domestic ministries are the goal of frontier missions. Now, this is addressed to the tension that arises in a church like Bethlehem, and it has and it does between those who are passionately concerned to do ministry here among our decrepit, degenerate, rotten American culture and those who are zealots to get the ministry giver to cultures where they don't even have a chance to minister. And those two groups often go at each other in a church. Now, here's what we learned at Bethlehem in the mid-80s. Domestic ministries is what I mean, what I mean is this, ministries relating right here to evangelism, poverty, medical care, unemployment, hunger, abortion, crisis, pregnancy, runaway kids, pornography, family disintegration, child abuse, divorce, hygiene, education at all levels, environmental concerns, terrorism, prison reform, moral abuses, in the media, in business, politics, etc., etc., etc. That's domestic ministry, which every church is called to do in its culture. Frontier Missions is not that. Frontier Missions is looking for where the peoples are, people groups, who can't even begin to minister in the name of Jesus by the power of Jesus because they don't know Jesus. And there is no church to minister among them. Now, what we discovered was this. Frontier missions is the export of domestic ministries. Frontier missions is the exportation of domestic ministries, which means why should there be any tension between these two groups of people? The frontier people honor the domestic people by agreeing that their work is worth exporting. And the domestic people honor the frontier people by insisting that what they export is worth doing here. And there need be no tension between them. They must believe in each other. And in general, I believe at Bethlehem, we have believed in each other. Conviction number five. The missionary task force is on or the missionary task is focused on peoples, not just individual people, and therefore is finishable. The task of missions is focused on peoples, not people, and therefore is finishable. Many of us used to have the notion that missions is just vaguely going to a faraway place to win more individuals for Jesus. But now we have come to see that the unique task of missions, as opposed to evangelism. Is to plant the church among peoples where it doesn't yet exist. And therefore, the question is not merely how do you maximize individuals? You might stay right here to do that and missions would never happen. This is not missions. Missions is crossing a culture. And it might be Somalis in Minneapolis, but it isn't your next-door neighbor who speaks your language, wears your clothes, works at the same kind of place you do. That's evangelism. Missions is crossing a culture into a people group who do not yet have a church from which ministries can be born. Revelation five nine is a picture of what missions are up to. Worthy art thou to take the scroll... And open its seals, for by thy blood thou hast ransomed men from every people, tribe, tongue, and nation. That's what I mean by peoples. Languages and peoples and cultures, there are groupings out there from which God has ransomed people. And he means for those ransomed to be found by means of the preaching of the gospel, one to Christ, formed into a church and turned into domestic ministries and evangelists. That's what he intends for missions. To accomplish. It's not a maximizing of individuals brought to Christ. It is a maximizing of peoples penetrated with the gospel. And that's utterly crucial if we're going to be a missions minded, obedient church. Conviction number six. The need of the hour, therefore, is for thousands of new Paul type missionaries. A fact which is sometimes terribly obscured by the quantity of Timothy type missionaries. The need of the hour is for thousands and thousands. And they're coming, I'll tell you, they're coming from South Korea. 100,000 students stood up last year in the bowl there in South Korea and said, we are going. They're coming from the Philippines. They're coming from Latin America. Latin America has exploded. And Brazil and Argentina are now sending nations and my prayer is that even though I see a great darkness, a gray cloud, a great self-centeredness, easy, comfort-laden Christianity settling across the American scene, my prayer is that we will not be part of it, but that rather there will be goers, that you will not fall prey to those awful thoughts that it's just good enough to send your money because local people can do it better than foreign people. It's not true. Because there are no local people in unreached peoples. There are no local believers in unreached peoples. The meaning of an unreached people, even if they're surrounded by 10 million Christians, is it takes cross-cultural missionaries to get in there and plant the church. Even if they're all in India or Kazakhstan or China. Don't ever fall for the prey that you can send your money And say, oh, local evangelists can do it better than we. Of course local evangelists can do evangelism better than you. They can't do missions better than you. Missions is crossing a culture and planting the church where it isn't. Now, Paul, when I say Paul and Timothy type missionaries, here's what I mean. Timothy lived in Lystra. In Acts 16, Paul comes and he finds him and he makes him part of his missionary band. He goes to Ephesus and he leaves him there There's a church in Ephesus. There are elders in Ephesus. There's an outreach program in Ephesus. And he says, Timothy, you stay right there Mister, minister. Don't go home. You are a Timothy-type missionary. They need you here. And therefore, I believe in it. It's got biblical precedent and it's precious. And therefore, when I exalt the need for thousands of Paul-type missionaries, I do not minimize the sacrifice and the preciousness of Timothy-type missionaries. But what I mean by Paul-type missionaries, as you heard in this text here that Dan read, is that Paul said, I make it my ambition to preach Christ where he is not named. He isn't named, and somebody has to take up that challenge. One of the most amazing things Paul ever said, I mean, it boggles the mind, is this from Romans 5, 19 and 23. He said, from Jerusalem, southern Palestine... All the way around as far as Illyricum, that's northern Italy, I have fulfilled the gospel. There is therefore now no room for me to work. It shakes your breath away. What do you mean there's no room for you to work? Tens of thousands of unbelievers in Ephesus. Tens of thousands in Iconium and Lystra and Derby and Antioch, not to mention the villages scattered around, and you say there's no work to be done here. Why? What in the world did that sentence mean? You know what that sentence meant? It meant, there is such a thing as missions. And it is the same as evangelism. Please do not buy in to the simplistic notion there's lots of unbelievers in the Twin Cities. Of course there are. And there are 1,200 evangelical churches to reach them. More churches in the Twin Cities than there are missionaries to the Muslims and Buddhist peoples of the world. 1.5 plus billion peoples. That sentence means there must be, if this job is going to get done, and it will get done, and may we be a part of it, there must be thousands, I believe hundreds of thousands, of young people, middle-agers, and especially retired people Who go, as Paul-type missionaries, to places where and peoples where Christ is not named. That was a massive discovery that we made. Finally, conviction number seven. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. And you are most satisfied in him. When your satisfaction expands to meet the needs of others. It's amazing how those who have suffered most in the cause of the missionary enterprise speak most lavishly about blessing and joy. If any man would come after me, let him take up his cross, deny himself and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels, that's missions, for my sake and the gospels will find it. You find your life, folks, by giving it away in the cause of the gospel. Samuel Zwamer, missionary to the Muslims, said after 50 years of missions labor, including the loss of two daughters in North Africa to the fever, the sheer joy of it all comes back. Gladly would I do it all over again. Hudson Taylor and David Livingston, you know, at the end of their lives, which were filled with extraordinary hardship, said, I never made a sacrifice. When a person speaks like that who has suffered much, God is magnified because what you see is that God is all sufficient to so deeply satisfy their hearts that every suffering brought into their lives in the cause of Christ takes them deeper into their experience of God. And they discover that Psalm 63, 3 is really true. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. Those are our driving convictions. There are more. My prayer is that God would open your heart and that you would see them and that you would join as senders or goers, but not disobedient, in a wartime lifestyle here or there to maximize all that you are and all that you have for that cause. I want to end the service like this. I would like those of you who this week, I listened to David Yeager's sermon so that I'd be up to speed. And I know God was touching you through that sermon. I know it was. I've heard some of you pray about it. And God's touched you on Wednesday night. And God's touched you in your devotions. God touched you about missions and worship on Friday night. And God has touched some this morning. I want to pray for you. And here are the people I want to come stand here. I don't have my mic on. I forgot. Sorry, Tom. i got to stay here. Um, I want you to stand here. And I want to pray a prayer for you briefly before Jim sings. And the people I want to come are these. If you sense that where you are now, school or work, doesn't feel like where you're going to be long-term, but that God has something more and you're not sure what, and secondly, you would very much like the courage and the discernment to know whether that next thing is a missions thing, I want to pray for you. Does that make sense? You're feeling a stirring right now that where you are is probably not the last thing or the next thing. And there's going to be something more. And it it just might be missions. And you need discernment. And you need courage. So if, if you're in that category, would you come stand right here quickly, please? We can't take too long. And I want to pray for you. I know, that, I know that you're out there. Just come on up. Let's make a little huddle here. And I'll pray. And Jim, why don't you come and position yourself at the mic to lead us in song. And then when we're done praying for this group, um, there are going to be prayer teams on either side. And if anybody wants individual prayer about anything, they would just love to to pray with you. Okay. This is good. This is good. Just If while I'm praying or while Jim's singing you want to join this group, you can. But let me pray for this group now. Lord, there are others I know, but these are the ones who are sensing right now something special about where they are. School, work, retirement, whatever else. And there's something else out there. And they're not perhaps quite sure, but they want to be open. So what I want to pray for them now is that a spirit of great discernment of your calling would come upon them. I pray, O Lord, for a spirit of courage, would you protect them from the deceits of the evil one, from the desire for other things, and from the distractions that pull us away from the great, big realities of life? Oh, God, just move in their hearts, I pray, and solidify the resolves that you've been creating. Clarify, Lord, the next step of their lives. I pray, give them all the zeal and all the courage and resolve that they would need to follow what you make clear. In Jesus' name, I pray.